Hello and welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Thank you for the support, the download, uh, and just all the feedback we've been getting. We really appreciate it. Today we have uh, a very unique podcast episode. I, I interview Mark Jaffe, the author of The Suitcase of Happiness. And the topic is a little different. It's on happiness, and I definitely try to tie it back into the workplace. Uh, it's a great episode. I do want to make you aware, this is kind of my short little disclaimer before we get going, is that we do talk about self-harm, and Mark talks about a, a situation in his life where somebody he loved commit suicide, and I just wanted to to make you aware of that. It's at the timestamp of about 18 minutes to 19 minutes, so... If you need to skip through that that part, totally understand it. It is a sensitive subject and it can be, you know, difficult to listen to. So, wanted to make you aware of that if you need to skip through, totally understand. Uh, or if you need to opt out of this episode altogether, we we get that as well. But again, appreciate the support and onto the show. Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business Podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Today I have author Mark Jaffe. He's the author of The Suitcase of Happiness and is a former senior executive at the Walt Disney Company. Mark, it is amazing to have you. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Brandon. Thank you. So I want to talk about your book, The Suitcase of Happiness, A Roadmap to Achieve and Enjoy Your Happiest Life. I had a chance to read this a couple of weeks ago, and I have to be honest with you. I mean, this this is unlike any other happiness book I've read. Most books that I've read on happiness are very scientific. A PhD author has written it for the most part. And you put yourself out there. I mean, these are stories about your life and your experiences, and you just put yourself out there in a kind of a vulnerable way, and I appreciate that for one. Well, I got to tell you, I've gotten a lot of responses about that, particularly from guys, and they're like, better you than me. I could never go out there with those stories. I mean, you're right. Vulnerability is frightening, but I think if we're going to make a breakthrough in being happier, I think we need to be comfortable and be vulnerable, and I think that Taking myself and putting myself out there as an example encourages others to say it's okay to do that. It's okay to confront what's stopping us from being happy head on because I did it in my life and I was success and I successfully confronted it. Tell us how you came up with the idea for the suitcase of happiness. I mean, you started the story or the, started the book by talking about a woman who had passed away in the Paris terrorist attacks in 2015 and how she'd been collecting moments of her life. Talk about how you sort of weave that story and and the lessons you learn from that into what you have created in this book. Well, that story had really touched me. It uh, is a story of a a woman, Veronique de Bougie, in Paris, who 
what did in fact lose her life uh, in the terrorist attacks uh, back last year in uh, the fall of 2015 in Paris. And three days later, her husband, who, I mean, they had been totally in love. They had this amazingly warm and tact and, and truly loving and, and supportive family. They did tons of things together. Three days later, 72 hours after he found out that his wife is no longer alive, he had to deliver her eulogy. And because of the prominence of the attacks, I mean, you could uh, see the eulogy in French on YouTube today. And he said something that just hit me at my core. Uh, he said that she was such an amazingly happy person. And she had something that I had never heard of before. She had a valise de bonheur which in French means a suitcase of happiness. And she took every moment that gave her joy, every moment that took her breath away and then restored it back even stronger. And she put that in her suitcase, moments of happiness and laughter, moments with her husband, moments with her children, moments when their family just looked at each other and just relished the fact that they were alive together and experiencing whatever they had at that time. And she put that all in her suitcase of happiness and she surrounded herself with these stories and retelling of these stories and experiencing these stories gave her this lasting period of happiness that just endured. But what struck me the most was in the eulogy, her husband said, thank, thank you to her for that suitcase of happiness, because that was her legacy to her, to him and to her children. And without the strength that he had from having that suitcase, and it wasn't a real suitcase, it was a metaphorical suitcase, but the strength of having that suitcase gave him and his children the ability to take those hard, hard moments after her passing and make it to that day. And it gave him the strength to give that eulogy. And I thought of my kids. And I have this amazing, incredible relationship with my kids. I, I'm so blessed and I have so much gratitude for how close we are. And I said, I can't, even though I have this great relationship, I can't say, hey, guys, how about if we just spend a few hours and I'll tell you how to be happy? I just, you know, you, that's a difficult conversation to actually have. And then, you know, how do you bring it up? How do you launch into it? And so I decided it's my legacy to them, similar to Veronique's legacy to her family. I was going to write about the Valise de Bonaire. I was going to write about the suitcase of happiness. I was going to show how, in essence, I had very much done the same thing that Veronique had done in France. And I had created my own suitcase of happiness, which provided me and has continued to provide me with this enduring state of happiness. And I wanted to give that gift to my children. And that's why I wrote the book. By that time you decided you're going to write this book about the suitcase of happiness, how had you been collecting those experiences that you'd had throughout the years? I mean, did you keep a journal? Did you uh, keep a video log? How did you collect some of these experiences? Most people wouldn't have that good a recall. Oh, no, I, I have awful recall. But, you know, there is a way to – there are so many different ways to crystallize experiences in your, in your mind. And, and for me, one of those ways is gratitude. I mean, gratitude just has the ability. My mom, for example, I mean, used to say every time we would go on a hike together, we'd, we'd go to you know these beautiful places and she would just stop and she'd say, just stop and look and bottle it. And bottle it became code in my family for preserving a moment. And so throughout my life, anytime I've 
had a moment. I've just expressed gratitude that I've had this amazing moment. And in essence, I've bottled those moments. I mean, there's an author, Melody Beattie, that uh, has this great quote that I'll read to you. It's just so beautiful about gratitude. And she said, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. It could turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into our friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. And so if you have this gratitude for these incredible moments, you may not remember a meal, but you're going to remember a feast. That's how I do it. I stop, I bottle the moment, and I express tremendous gratitude for having had it in my life. When you think of happiness, and I want to start kind of at the beginning of your book, when you think of happiness and what it means to somebody, it means, I think, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think you allude to that in the book. But after your research and all the stories and really finishing this book, what does happiness mean to you? Wow, that, that's, that's a difficult question. I've, I continually try to define that for myself. Yeah. It, it, you I figured know, you'd it, say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I struggled with that chapter in the book. I mean, and I think I even said, how can I, as an author of a book on happiness, not give you a good definition of it? And I still don't have a good definition of it. I mean, the only definition I have been able to come up with because it comes from so many places. I mean, I obviously have 10 pathways uh, to happiness that I describe in the book, and each of these pathways give me a different amount of happiness. But, you know, I hate to put it in these terms, but I really feel that my definition of happiness is the same as the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. Because, uh, as you know, years ago, the Supreme Court was asked to define pornography, and they couldn't. I mean, you know, obviously, well, maybe it's nudity, but how about all the great artwork of uh, Ru- Rubens or the, Mi- the Michelangelo? And, and so they were never able to define it. And they had this raging debate. And finally, the chief justice or one of the justices in support wrote the prevailing opinion, which said, I know it when I see it. And I think that's the same for happiness. You know, all these books that you talk about that are so scientific, in essence, try to define happiness for people, and they can't. My sense of happiness is going to be different from yours. My cocktail of what creates happiness for me, just like cocktails in general or food in general, my palate is different than yours. What gives me joy is different than what gives you joy. And interestingly enough, what gave me joy when I was 20 is different from what gives me joy today with grown children. I mean, in the book, I talk about the fact that I used to throw these massive incredible parties that I would call rum runners. And I would have everybody come over and there'd be 20, 50, who knows how many people, 75 people would show up. Everyone brings a bottle of rum. They toss it in this big bowl and I would provide the first bottle and all the fruit juice. Well, as you can imagine, as people showed up with bottles and bottles and bottles of rum, it became more and more and more potent. And it was really like this drunken bacchanal, which to me was like happiness incarnate. It doesn't get better then 50 to 100 people just literally completely drunk, having the best time and a party with amazing music going until the wee hours of the morning. Well, now I'm a little bit older and, you know, maybe that would be a fun party, but I'd probably pay the price for a couple of weeks after for having had it and having experienced it. So my idea of happiness has changed over time. 
And I think people not only have different ideas of happiness, but they do change over time, which is why not only is it hard to define, but it's hard to define in general for any individual. You had this a quick little paragraph that I, I found very profound in, in early part of the book. And it, you talked about when you were 13 years old, you had uh, a lot of friends, you, you were seen as cool in, in one particular group, and you had this belong, you had a sense of belonging that you had desired so much. And I think in that moment, you may have been happy temporarily, but I think overall, you, you weren't as happy as you thought you'd be. Why was that? Well, you know, I, I, this is one of the vulnerable parts of the book. I was actually not a very popular kid when I was younger. And when I was 13, I discovered a group that would accept me. And I was so excited about it. And the price for admission was during lunch, you had to go to the local 7-Eleven and smoke cigarettes. And I said, oh, I could do that. And all of a sudden, I'm in the group just because I'm a 13-year-old smoking cigarettes. And of course, smoking cigarettes led to drinking at 13 and And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, well, this is fantastic. Now I've done it. I'm totally happy because I have this group of people that like me and accept me and want to have fun with me and go out with me on the weekends and have people that have lunch with every day. And after a couple of months of that, I I realized that may have satisfied one of my needs, but I, I really wasn't as happy as I thought I would be. Happiness is more than that. It's more than just having one of your needs, albeit a very core need for a 13-year-old, which is social acceptance being met. It's bigger than that. And that's when I realized I want to focus on what that is for me. And, you know, the book details that journey that started at age 13 and still continues. How does focus play a role in happiness? Because I often think about, you know, when I'm at work, and I have a big meeting coming up and I focus on failure or something's going to go wrong, inevitably I end up with that. Why, why, why does focus have so much to do with how happy we actually are? Well, in the book, I talk about the four laws of focus. And the truth is, what you focus on, you find. I mean, I remember my best friend since I was 15 year old, years old, this guy named Bob, and we're still best friends to this day. Uh, a couple of years ago, we went on a trip to Oregon and we're going down the Oregon seacoast and we're, you know, driving and we're walking and, and the sun's out one day and we're walking in this cute little seaside town. And I, I mean, there's something about being in a rainy climate or a cold climate on a nice day. All of a sudden, everybody comes out, they're, they're dressed and in, in great looking uh, clothes. And, you know, it's like the hormones are flying for all these, you know, single people, and they're just these beautiful, beautiful women flying, uh, walking down the street, and I can't help but just staring at them. And after, you know, I saw these two in particular, I just looked at Bob, and I said, oh, my God, did you see that? And he said, oh, yeah, I did. I got to go in for a closer look. And I'm thinking, are you nuts? I mean, this, this is not the recipe for, you know, meeting someone. You can't go in for a closer look. And I'm about to say something to him, and I saw him start to run off. But he wasn't running off towards them. He was actually running off the other way towards the ocean, and in particular towards this one house on the beach. And I said, and I'm running after him going, what are you doing? He said, well, you're right. I did see it. I mean, this wood siding is amazing. And I looked at him and I'm like, what are you looking wood siding for? 
he said, well, I'm thinking of building a house on the beach. And so I want to see wood siding that really weathers the, uh, the elements. And I realized I was looking at women. He was looking at siding. And we were both walking down the same beach, down the same road by the beach. We were both had the same vista of things available. But what I focused on, which was pretty girls, because I was single at that point, I found. And what he focused on, which was wood siding, he found. And so it really is a matter of perspective. I mean, what you focus on, you find, and what you focus on seems real. Like, oh my God, this is really real to me. And it grows. What you focus on grows. So in your case, for example, if you're focusing on failure, the possibility of failure gets more real. The possibility and now the probability of failure grows. And then here's the key. What you become, what you focus on. What you focus on, you find. What you focus on seems real. What you focus on grows, and you become what you focus on. And so for me, by focusing on uh, my happiness and focusing on, you know, really exploring that, I've been able to become that. It grows. I seek out these moments of happiness. I put it in my valise de bonheur, my, my metaphorical suitcase of happiness. They become more and more real. They become more and more instinctive as part of what I do in my life. And I, in essence, become a happy person. So when you think about focusing on failure versus, versus focusing on success, the more you focus on success in terms of your presentations or your tasks, the more successful you'll become because your mind becomes attuned to what it takes to become successful. Just as in my case and in readers who adopt this, their mind becomes attuned to what it takes for them to become happy. In the book, you talk about five barriers to happiness. And I want to start, and I hope you don't mind, I want to start by sharing the personal and unfortunate story uh, of your significant other who had passed. Uh, and you'd mentioned it was a very dark time for you. But talk about how acceptance is a huge component to happiness in the future. Uh, it's true. I fell, uh, after my divorce, I fell in love with this woman, Beth, who is this amazing, amazing human being. I mean, she... She was more beautiful on the inside than on the outside, and she was gorgeous on the outside. And, you know, we had this idyllic romance. I mean, so many of the principles of happiness were part of her as well as they were part of me before we even met. Um, and seven months into it, I get a phone call that she had committed suicide. And of course, I, I was just devastated. I mean, how could this happen? I had no idea. And I was just lost and confused. And, you know, no matter what anyone did to console me, I was inconsolable. I was in a sea of black. I mean, you know, all I saw was black. I, I felt like this dark cloud had enveloped me and there was no way out of it. And after months, literally, of truly struggling, I mean, I would go throughout my day, but I was never really there. I did what I had to do for my clients, and I was never truly present. I wasn't truly present with my friends. I wasn't truly present with my children. I was lost, and I was in this horrible, horrible, dark place. I mean, I thought Beth and I would live the rest of our lives together. I could never have foreseen that coming. And one day I'm talking to this guy who is actually a corporate retreat facilitator and kind of an executive coach. And he said, have you ever thought of acceptance? 
I go, I have absolutely no idea what that means. And he goes, well, one day when you're feeling particularly bad, say to yourself, I feel awful. I feel lost. I feel depressed. I feel like I'm enveloped by a black cloud. And say that over and over and over. And I said, okay, then what happens? And he goes, well, no, that's it. I go, what do you mean that's it? That doesn't do anything. He goes, trust me, it does. Because it gets you to accept what has become in your life. And you can't move on to change until you have acceptance. And I, and I decided to do that. And slowly, slowly but surely it worked. Because the foundation for change is acceptance of your current condition. I mean, it, it was absolutely amazing. It was transformative. I mean, it takes a while. It really does. And it takes continual practice to acknowledge the place you're in. But until you truly accept and acknowledge the place you're in, you can't move forward because we all try to fight it, don't we? I mean, just think about something that's less pronounced than the, the, de- the sudden death of someone you love. Think about an, a, a comment you made or an action you took that you regretted and you wish you could do over. And how many times do we replay that loop in our mind, trying to take it back, trying to do it over, trying to redo something that has already been done. And we just waste so much time and energy and, and incur tremendous angst when we do that. But by accepting it, accepting the reality of today, of this moment, we're able to transform ourselves and move forward. The cloud slowly lifts, the confusion slowly clarifies. And we're able to move forward and take proactive action to make our life better and to make this specific situation which is causing the angst better. It seems like a lot of people often equate success, material things with with happiness. Like, I'm going to get the next promotion or I'm going to get the next raise and I'm going to be happy. But that sometimes can wear off. You talk about perspective and what that means and, and how it can make you happy. Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, one of the things I, I learned about suicide is um, a graphic example which applies to perspective of how people could commit suicide. And I, you know, I thought of Beth and I thought of this amazing life we had and she had three children who were just unbelievable kids. And I'm thinking, how can someone like this commit suicide. And obviously she had, you know, the demons that caused that. But if you can imagine looking outside at this beautiful vista and somewhere in that vista is someone walking with a black shirt and all you choose to focus on is the black in that shirt and nothing else seems real for you. That's how someone explained to me how suicide is possible because all they do is they focus on the black. There's no perspective. They don't see that the black piece of that picture is one-tenth of one percent of the entire vista. They only see that little thing that they focus on. And we often suffer from a lack of perspective. I mean, thank goodness, you know, that lack of perspective doesn't, you know, cause us to do uh, horrific things, but it does cause us not to realize the happiness that we could have. And, you know, my dad... (laughs) He used to always say, I used to complain about not having a foot until I met a man without a leg. And I used to always laugh at that. But the truth is, 
he was trying to show me perspective. I mean, certainly not having a foot is still pretty awful, but you know, perspective gives us the ability to move forward and to enjoy happiness because happiness can exist side by side with our unhappiness. It's possible to make peace with both good and bad simultaneously existing as part of who we are. I mean, how do you explain people with disabilities or people with illnesses that lead really wonderful, enjoyable, happy lives? Because they have perspective that this one troubling thing is only part of our lives. There are so many other beautiful pieces of our lives that we could create that cause us to be happy. So, you know, I think we've got to stop ourselves from being swallowed up by this rising tide of emotional anguish, when in reality, it's just a small ripple of stress, disproportionately disturbing this large pond of pleasure in which we live. You know, that's what perspective is. See the world view, see everything around you, see possibility and focus, back to focus, focus on the possibility as opposed to whatever the issue is that's troubling you. And in many cases, you know, you're, you're focused so much on the next promotion. You're focused so much on, you know, that a lot of people get, you know, one of the barriers that I talk about is this endless pursuit of success. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with success. The problem with the endless pursuit of success is the endless pursuit of it. I think it's great to try to get a raise. I think it's great to excel and do incredible at your role. But if all you're doing is focusing on this pursuit of success, you're doing it to the exclusion of everything else that could give you happiness in your life. And that's the kind of perspective I'm talking about. Do you think purpose could play a role in perspective a little bit? And here's my example. So let's say I work for an organization and I'm in my role where I just don't understand what I'm doing. I just, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm tied to any outcome. I don't feel purpose in my role. But if an organization is really good about letting people understand where, what your role is in the organization and what we're doing for the market or for our customers or whomever, how having that perspective of like a, a grander purpose, how that could help in, in terms of what you're talking about in perspective? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but it could help in terms of how an organization or a company could be even more successful. I mean, you know, there, there are countries that are focused on creating purpose and creating happiness with their citizens to create a better organization and to give the right perspective to their employees for increased success. I mean, you got to watch this TED talk by the prime minister of Bhutan, who talked about gross national happiness, which is his vision to improve happiness and well-being of his people. You know, and, and the truth is, in Bhutan, happiness drives development, not the other way around. And, it's, and because, you know, it, they want people to feel development as part of the overall happiness of the country and the purpose of the country, which is very eco-centered. So think about companies. If companies instill a sense of purpose or corporate happiness with people, it's also going to be more successful. I mean, last year, for example, Fast Company uh, published this article stating that happiness led to a 12% spike in productivity while unhappy workers proved 10% less productive. Why? Because unhappy workers were unhappy for two reasons. One, as you, put, as you discussed, that corporations didn't do the things to give them a sense of purpose, to make them happier in their role, to give them a raise on debt, 
for continuing to excel in their job. So corporations need to promote happiness more during the workday. But the one thing that corporations don't don't really understand is that they have to also give employees the ability and the tools to be happy out of the workday. You know, there's, because think about being in um, a, a bunch of cubicles with a bunch of workers, and one of them wakes up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning, and they come to work, and they are just, you know, going on and on about whatever's troubling them. That's not a very productive workplace, no matter how much purpose the company has, because that employee is kind of poisoning the well. And so what a number of companies are now starting to adopt is not only promoting happiness as a result of purpose in the workplace, but promote, but giving workers the tools and employees the tools to be happy out of the workplace, which is really what I focus on tremendously. Let's talk about some of the tools. In the book, you provide 10 pathways. And I want to talk about just a couple of them because I know we're running out of time and I want people to read your book because it's great. Talk about how saying yes can open up doors to, to being happy in a, in a perpetual way. Well, when you think about um, the concept of yes versus no, I mean, just mathematically, if you're with one other person, it takes two people to say yes. It only takes one person to say no. And the possibilities of yes are tremendous because, you know, happiness, there are moments of happiness all around us. Everywhere. I mean, imagine these incredible moments of happiness. The only barrier to them is saying yes. You know, we just need to know where to find happiness, have the intention to create them, and then collect them and embark on the journey. Just saying yes makes a huge difference. I mean, one of the most pivotal points uh, in my relationship, for example, with Beth was one time early, early, early in the relationship. We went out on this six-mile run on a hot day on the beach. It was absolutely beautiful and, you know, and very tiring. And so we finished this run. We're covered in sweat, looking pretty gross. And all of a sudden, she, like, moves in for a kiss. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I don't know if I really want to do this, you know, because, it's you know, we're pretty sweaty and gross. But I didn't have a choice. She just did it, and, and I went with it. And what that did was set up this pattern of saying yes. She said yes to, I want to have a special moment with you. I didn't allow the easiness of saying no to stop me because trust me, it's super easy to say no. I'm too tired. I'm too cold. I'm too sweaty. I'm not into it. I'm lazy. You know, it's very easy to say no. But when you say no, you block off a moment of happiness that you could have. And that's the power of yes. I remember um, I gave a, a presentation recently to Wanderlust, which is one of the largest yoga um, and wellness companies in the world. They put on all these huge festivals. And there was a, a three people from Australia that attended that presentation. And they told me that after that presentation, they called it the yes trip. And for the next two weeks in Los Angeles, they said yes to whatever any of the three people wanted to do. And they said it was the most incredible vacation together. They couldn't believe how much fun Los Angeles was. And I'm thinking to myself, any place could have been that much fun if you continually said yes. And so yes has this incredible power to be transformative. One of my closest friends who now lives in Florida bought the book and told his 12-year-old daughter about the rule of yes. And he said she so embraced it 
that he now has to say yes to almost everything. I mean, obviously things that are dangerous or, or not prudent, he won't say yes to. But he now says yes to everything with her other than those things that are wrong to say yes to. And he said his life with his daughter has become so much more rich. And he thanked me, he said, just for that one chapter, I'm so glad I read your book. I mean, the power of yes is huge. When I did the workshop at Wanderlust, there were two couples, not one, but two couples that looked at each other and said, we are going to do this in our relationship now. And both of them followed up with me and told me it was transformative because it's too easy to say yeah, no. And the power of yes just could bring incredible moments of happiness that we don't even know are out there. But now we open the door and allow them in. Along similar lines of saying yes, one of the tools that you, you talked about, which I, I resonated with personally, you talked about learning and discovery and how that's such an essential tool in the suitcase. And I often kind of translate it back to a professional development, for example, how a lot of people often just will check out they get when they get home, they'll turn on reality TV shows, they'll do whatever, versus, you know, picking up a book or going and experiencing something with somebody and uh, allowing themselves to be happy a moment and, and add that to, to their suitcase. Talk about how learning and discovery was, it was big for you. Well, you know, I kind of discovered learning and discovery in, in a backwards way because I, I always, I love vacations and I always take these amazing vacations. And many, many years ago when my kids were smaller, we went to uh, Newfoundland. Why? Because I thought it would be kind of fun to see how far 25,000 miles per person would get me on my frequent flyer program. And Newfoundland was pretty much the furthest distance away from Los Angeles. So without much more thought than that, we went to Newfoundland. We arrive in St. John's, which is this very sleepy capital. We go to this little cafe with about eight people in it. None of them are from out of town. And the waitress comes over to us, and she could clearly tell we're not from there. And she said, where are you from? I said, Los Angeles. She goes, what are you doing here? I said, oh, well, we're, we're on vacation. And she looked at me kind of quizzically, and she said, well, why would you come to Newfoundland to do that? And at that moment, I realized I was in a lot of trouble because there isn't all that much to do in Newfoundland. And so the next day we started wandering around and we saw this kind of really beat up, rusty marina. And, you know, these old, old boats are just bobbing against their moorings and creaking. And there's this guy on the boat and one of these little fishing boats. And he's kind of this old guy, crotchety guy repairing his nets. And I walked over to him and I just instinctively said, hey, can, can we help you out with that? He goes, sure, come on board. And for the next four hours, he showed my kids every part of his boat. He told us all these incredible sailing stories. We worked with him on his nets. And as we left that day, our, my kids were like, that was like one of the best vacation days ever. And I realized we didn't do anything except for be open to discovery. And actually, we had that was one of our best trips we ever had. I mean, all of a sudden, every square inch in Newfoundland was a new place to be discovered. Every person was a new person to talk to, to meet. And that vacation was one of our best ever. And when I came back to Los Angeles, I thought, how could I lead my life like I'm on vacation? And I realized there's so much to discover in Los Angeles. I mean, I bought a book on secret stairways. Who even knew there were secret stairways in Los Angeles? But there are. I mean, back in the day when they were developing all these hillsides, they realized 
it was very problematic for people to kind of go in a Z pattern down the hill. Why don't we build a stairway in the easements between houses? And so I've embarked on walking every one of these stairways and eating in the local cafes. I mean, there's so much to discover. My, my daughter, for example, she uh, wound up having a number of different um, health and dietary restrictions. So she loves cooking. She loves healthy foods. And so now she makes the most amazing meals. I mean, they're three-hour things where she goes out and we go to these health food stores and we buy these fresh organic produce and she comes back and it's all planned out and they become amazing discoveries. Who knew? I always thought you just kind of put some burgers on the grill and we're done, right? But if you discover, if you live your life like you're on vacation, wherever you are, it is an attitude. It's in your head. And again, it creates these moments of happiness you never thought were possible. Mark, how do we put this all together? So for, for people listening, how, how do they get started with developing their suitcase, putting in their experiences and, and reliving those over and over so they can sustain that happiness? Well, it's, it's about focus. It's where we started the conversation. It's about focusing on creating happiness, which sounds like, oh, that's a lot of work. Do I have to focus on something else? You know, I, I mean, remember when you're four years old and you have to focus on remembering to brush your teeth every morning. Well, I don't really focus much on it. It's just part of my life, obviously, for the last who knows how many years where it's just instinct, as is happiness, as is being open to discovery, as is saying yes. It's just taking a couple of pathways that resonate for you and focusing on them as ways to get happiness. And what's going to happen is like anything in life, when you focus on something and it actually happens, when you focus on getting happiness and you realize, oh my goodness, it's only been two weeks and I've already had two or three or four moments of happiness I wouldn't have had had I not focused, it's this unbelievably great loop of happiness. You create a happiness loop for yourself. This gives me happiness. I want to do more of it. You get more happiness. You want more of it. So you do the same thing more, whether it's the rule of yes, whether a lot of people focus on laughter, a lot of people focus on play. I mean, there's so many different things to focus on. And a lot of people focus on gratitude or on creating meaning in their lives or on anything that gives them happiness. The more you focus on it, the more you find it, the more it grows, the more it becomes real and eventually, the more it becomes who you are, so that happiness becomes an instinct, that your suitcase of happiness continually gets larger. And the more you have, the more you create, and the more you create, the more you have. It's this wonderful happiness loop that can really be an enduring go-to state. A lot of people feel that happiness is fleeting. I don't. I think you can live in happiness. And of course, there's going to be unhappy moments but they coexist side by side with the happiness and the enduring happiness that you've created through your suitcase of happiness. Mark, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I enjoyed the book immensely. Where can people find the book? I assume Amazon, but any other links or resources you want to provide where people can find the book? Well, the best one is really uh, Amazon and it is Suitcase of Happiness. And happiness, by the way, is spelled H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S, Suitcase of Happiness. Or go to my website and then you'll get on all my newsletters. I have a free Wake Up Happy checklist that I will give to anyone who comes onto the website and signs up, which is suitcaseofhappiness.com. I'm also on Twitter. I, I, 
I mean, it's amazing how this has resonated. I've pretty much doubled my Twitter followers in the last three weeks. I mean, I'm not a huge uh, following, but I got went from 5,000 to 10,000 in the last three wow. weeks. I mean, all that's how I found you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I mean, all of a sudden, it has really resonated at Mark Jaffe on Twitter. Mark Jaffe went on Instagram. But the best place to start really would be suitcaseofhappiness.com, H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S, and the book's available on Amazon. Mark Jaffe, thank you for joining the podcast. We're all better for it, and we're more happy for it, I think. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Brandon, and, and people can feel free to reach out to me on my website. I would, I would love to hear from everyone. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com. Thank you.